0: church family. Good to see you. I hope that you will be able to stay to the end of this service today. We're glad that you're here. I want to welcome anyone who is a first-time guest with us today. We always love welcoming guests into our services. I want to welcome all you folks that are joining us online. I hope if you are local and you're just checking us out online that you'll come and visit us in person real soon. This is the beginning of a new message series called Faithful. I don't know if any of you will remember this or not, but several years ago, I shared a message series here at Mount Pleasant on the Great Commission. It was from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, The heart of that passage is verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then Jesus said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But here's why I bring that up. At the beginning of each and every message in that message series, I started by asking, asking the same question every weekend. And the same question was this, can a single church in central Indiana change the world? Can a single church in central Indiana change the world? And then sometime after that, we rewrote our mission statement. We have a vision statement as a church, a mission statement, and then we have what we call our core four strategies that we employ to try to live out that vision and that mission. But we rewrote our mission statement to say that we wanted to be a church that was changing the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. On the surface, that sounds kind of crazy. I'm talking about this idea that a single church in central Indiana or a single church anywhere has the ability to change the world. But when you step back and you look at that question from the perspective of the scripture, your attitude can begin to change. I think of verses like Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, something that Paul included in a prayer that he was praying for the church in Ephesus. And he says this about God in those words Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's how he talks about God, as someone who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. When you think about that question, can a single church in central Indiana change the world through the lens of what the Bible says about the power of God, then it doesn't sound so crazy. And then when you look at the question from the perspective of the strategic partnerships we have with ministries and missions around the world, for example, Central India Christian Mission in India where we have had an almost 30 year living link relationship with Ajay and Indu Law who through the work of that mission take note of this have planted over the course of 30 years 4610 churches where there are about a million people worshipping together every week And that's just one of the many things that they do. And when you look at the question through the perspective of those kinds of partnerships, it doesn't begin to sound so crazy. Talk about our partnership with Pioneer Bible Translators where Mount Pleasant Christian Church in Greenwood, Indiana is fully funding the translation of the scriptures into the language of the single largest remaining people group in the world. People in Southeast Asia. People in a dark communist country that is so dangerous that we're not even allowed to say or print the name of those people. And when you look at it, I'm talking about that question through the lens of that kind of a partnership, that question doesn't sound so crazy. You talk about our partnership with pro in Poland who through sports camps and summer camps and church planting and Christian schools and a newly discovered ministry to displaced Ukrainians and on and on and on you see that the question about whether or not a single church in central Indiana can change the world does not seem so crazy, and I could go on and on talking about different partnerships. What about our impact ministry? We have our impact center right here on our campus. We have impact campuses across Indianapolis where we are ministering every day to underserved and under-resourced people, people that are ignored and marginalized for the most part by the rest of the world, but we're going into those communities and reviving churches and planting churches and ministering to those people because our theme verse for that ministry is John 1, 14, where in the message we read, the word, Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And when you think about that question, can a single church in central Indiana change the world through the lens or the perspective of that kind of a ministry, all of a sudden the question doesn't seem so crazy. But in order for all of this to happen and so much more, then we have to be a people who are completely committed to the faithful stewardship of our lives as we follow Jesus. And when I say our lives, I'm talking about every aspect of our lives, including whatever amount of money God has entrusted to you, whether it's a little or a lot. And so because of that, we spend every November talking about what the Bible has to say about money, not just our attitude about money, but also our actions related to money as well. And this year, we're doing that in this message series called Faithful, because, and I mentioned to you this last week, the single most definitive thing the Bible has to say about stewardship in any area of life is that as stewards, we need to be faithful. And so, Let's talk about that for a minute, and because we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me this morning, and we're just going to read together, I want to hear your voices, one single verse of Scripture as we begin this message. This is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. Let's read it together. Let me hear your voices. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. I've told you for years that when we read and study the Bible, we have to pay close attention to context. That's a key part of being a good Bible student. So, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, we need to understand the context of this verse. Paul is writing about being a servant of Christ who has been entrusted with what he calls, in my NIV Bible, the secret things of God. That's the context. Now, when Paul talks about the secret things of God, he's not talking about things that are intended to be hidden. He's talking about things that need to be explained, that need to be taught. And so really he's talking about the truths of God that need to be explained. But the key part of the verse related to being a steward is this requirement of faithfulness. Whatever you're a steward of, God's expectation of your life and my life is that we be faithful stewards of everything he entrusts us, and that includes whatever amount of money he entrusts us, whether it's a little or a lot. And when you think about that responsibility in the light of scripture, there are four words that can be found in the scripture that we have to understand if we're gonna be faithful stewards of whatever amount of money God has entrusted us. Those words are ownership, stewardship, which basically just means management, Uh, contentment and number four, generosity. And that's what we're going to be talking about during these four weekends in November. And we're going to begin this weekend by talking about ownership. And when we talk about ownership, I just want to be really completely honest and transparent with you. When we talk about The biblical truth of ownership, and that is the biblical truth that God owns everything. Everything in this world that God created, including the world, belongs to God. Whenever we talk about that, I feel a tension in my life. And I would imagine that many of you would say the same thing. When we think about and talk about the reality of God's ownership of all things, there's a tension that comes in my life because of two things. And the first thing is this, my absolute conviction that this is completely true. I don't have any doubt for a second from the biblical record that God is the owner of all things. Every single thing belongs to God. And we can spend all the rest of our time just talking about biblical proof texts for this reality. Let's just look at some. You go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and we read these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created. Everything belongs to God. We can fast-forward to Exodus chapter 19, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. He led them into the desert. They They camped at Mount Sinai. He went up on the mountain and talked to God, and God spoke these words to Moses as they were camped at Mount Sinai. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now, note what he says next. God says, although the whole earth is what? Say it with me, mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14, this is Moses giving reminders to the Israelites, and he says, to the Lord your God belong, and then he says, the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 14, David spoke these words as a part of receiving an offering that would pay for the building of a temple. As a part of a prayer, he said, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And then he says, everything, everyone say everything. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. The book of Job, chapter 41 and verse 11, God's speaking to Job uh, during this time when they had a back and forth and Job was unhappy about the circumstance that had come into his life. And God says this, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything, everything under heaven belongs to me. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible related to this is Psalm 24 verses one and two and verse one in particular written by David when he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the water. The Bible is filled with verses and passages of scripture that remind us of this biblical truth of ownership that every single thing belongs to God. The earth, the world, everything, everyone in it all belongs to God. Now, so far, all these verses that we've looked at have come exclusively from the Old Testament. That doesn't mean the New Testament doesn't reiterate the same truth. It just talks about the ownership of God in some different ways. You can find clear matter-of-fact statements uh, in the New Testament about the ownership of God. For example, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 26 Paul quotes the words of Psalm 24 and verse 1 when he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But oftentimes, you find this truth of God's ownership in the New Testament in the stories that are told in the in the Gospels in particular. I'm thinking, for example, of a story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 that we call the parable of the rich fool, or maybe in older translations, see, the rich farmer. Jesus is with some people. He's doing some teaching one day. And Luke 12, verses 13 through 15 says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said, watch out. This is Jesus speaking. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, one of the reasons why a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions is because they aren't his possessions. Somebody say amen to that. They're not. Just like your possessions are not your possessions. But if that's not clear in the beginning of the passage, it becomes crystal clear as Jesus goes on to tell the story of this foolish rich man who one year had an especially large Crop. but the problem was he didn't have a place to store it all, and so after some dilemma, he comes to the brilliant conclusion, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my existing barns, and I'll build bigger barns, and they'll store up all of my wealth and all of my good and all of my grain, everything that I have, and then he says about this in Luke twelve 19, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream right there, right? We have so much stored up that we just can say, you've done it all. Nothing left to do, take life easy, just eat, drink, and be merry. But here's how Jesus ends the story in the very next verse, Luke chapter 12 and verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, and we've talked about this before, of all the things that you want God to say to you, this is not one of them. (laughs) He says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And while this is just a parable, While this is just a story, we understand from all of Scripture that God has the right to do this because everything belongs to God. It wasn't just the crop that this man had, the wealth that he had that belonged to God. This man's life belonged to God as well. And he was being a foolish steward. He was being a foolish steward of his life, and he was being a foolish steward of all that God had entrusted to him. And so in the end, God, as a part of his ownership, took both. Everything belongs to God. And that's one side of this tension that we can often feel when we talk about stewardship and the understanding that everything belongs to God. The second side of the tension, and this is really where the tension comes from, is that it's easy for people like you and me, even people of deep, sincere, genuine faith, it's easy for us to give lip service to this truth but not really fully embrace it in the way we live our lives. We could say, God owns all things. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Now give me my money and get out of my house or something like that, whatever it might be for you. And part of this is just the natural reality of living in a world that's not just focused on but obsessed with things and wealth and possessions and personal ownership I know what the Bible says about God's ownership of all things. I can remember... Even at my age, I can remember when I was a little boy, and we used to call it primary church. When I was a little boy growing up in church, you went to the nursery. Then when you got old enough to get out of the nursery, you went to primary church. and When you got old enough to get out of primary church, you went to junior church. And when you got old enough to get out of junior church, you went to big church. That's what we called it back then. Some of you probably can relate to that. But I can remember being a little boy just in primary church, and we would sing a song every week that said, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. This was drummed into me from the time I was just a child, this truth that God owns everything. But I think of the house that I live in as my house. I think of it as our house. My wife Sandy and mine, this is our house. That's how I think about it. We bought it. We made the sacrifice of making extra principal payments with every mortgage payment so that the mortgage would be paid off. And now it's really, genuinely, truly our house. That's the way I think about it. But there's nothing in Scripture that even suggests joint ownership with God. Not really. And I go back to that one verse that we read earlier, Psalm 24 and verse 1 from David, when he just simply, he says it as matter-of-factly as possible. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so there's tension. Do you ever feel that tension in your life? I really seriously doubt it's just me. When we think about this biblical truth of ownership, which is an essential part of understanding what it means to be a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you. There's tension. Have you ever noticed, and this might sound like a really odd thing to say, but bear with me. Have you ever noticed when you read your Bible that with God it's always all or nothing? always with God it's it's the same it's consistent over and over again it's always all or nothing you see it throughout scripture Uh, Deuteronomy 6 5 such a well-known passage of scripture such a, a passage that was so crucial to the lives of the Jewish people and continues to be today Jewish people love these words love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength Jesus repeats those words in the New Testament you know that One day, a a man asked him what the greatest commandment was, and here's how he answered that question in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. He said, love the Lord, Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. No halfway commitment there. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything, everything is accomplished. We talked about the Great Commission earlier. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations. And he said, Teaching them everything. I have commanded you. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Paul says about Jesus, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, which just is another proof text in the New Testament that tells us about the ownership of God. I could keep going, but I'll stop right there. Why is it, if you had to answer this question, think about this. I mean, if somebody just genuinely and sincerely, maybe you're sharing your faith with somebody and you're trying to to walk them to a place where they are willing to put their faith and trust in Jesus and you're going through the scriptures and they say, why is it that with God, it's all or nothing? Why, what would you say? I'm sure there could be multiple answers to that question that would all be very, very powerful. But at the same time, I I really kind of think it can be this simple. Because as God's creation, we have to take seriously his absolute sovereignty and his perfect will. We have to take that seriously. When I say his absolute sovereignty, I mean the biblical truth that God is in control of all things. And he has a perfect will for us. And one of the ways we do that, one of the ways we acknowledge that absolute sovereignty and that perfect will is by understanding the fullness and the completeness of his ownership of all things, everything he created. Again, Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That means there is no my house and there is no your house. There's no my money and there's no your money. There's no my anything. There's no your anything. Because everything belongs to God. And I can feel the tension that even as I'm talking to you about it right now in this moment, because my flesh, the fallen reality of my life, makes me think in terms of what belongs to me. And I think that's probably true for all of us. So what's the answer? I mean, if that's the, if that's the tension, if that's the problem, and we're talking about this, this understanding that this this word ownership from a biblical perspective as a part of our desire to be faithful stewards of everything that God has entrusted us, including whatever amount of money He's entrusted us, what is the answer? Well, I think there are three things that we can do. That's what I'm gonna suggest to you today. And I'm not I'm not saying this is the perfect uh, final formula or anything like that, but in the time that we have together this morning, I'm gonna suggest three things that we can do. And the first thing, if you like to take notes, is this write this down somewhere. We have to literally transfer ownership, transfer ownership from ourselves to God. And this isn't something we do, <clears throat> let's make sure we understand this. This is something we do to uh, create God's ownership. Because that's already established. This is something we do to acknowledge God's ownership and to fully surrender to God's ownership. So we have to transfer ownership. But how do we do that? Well, here's my suggestion. And I'll leave it up to you and your family about how seriously you want to take this. But I think there needs to be a specific moment or a specific time in all of our lives where we have this very deliberate deliberate rather, transfer of ownership. You can call it a... Um, ceremony, a service, you can just call it a prayer. There needs to be some deliberate transfer of ownership prayer. Now, I can't find an example of this uh, in the Bible in terms of transferring ownership of things so much like, as we're talking about, like money and, and possessions. But there's a great story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 19, about a time when the Assyrian king sent a threatening letter to a man named Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah. You write that down, um, 2 Kings chapter 19, you can go home and read that story uh, a little bit later today. Assyria was a world empire, and uh, the Assyrian king was a menace to everyone and everything that he came in contact with. He was just intent on destroying and acquiring everything. And so this was really a big deal. And when Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, got this letter, Second uh, Kings chapter 19, verses 14 through 19 says that he took that letter into the temple of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord, and he asked the Lord for deliverance. Let me just read Second Kings chapter 19, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Note this prayer. "O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. That's how he began his prayer. What's he acknowledging, friends? He's acknowledging the ownership of God of all things in this moment of crisis. And then he asked God for his deliverance. And so in essence, Hezekiah went into the temple, put this letter that he'd gotten from the king of Judah before the Lord and said, this is my paraphrase, God, you are sovereign over everything you created. I'm surrendering my kingdom to your ownership and authority for your protection and deliverance because while I might be king, I know that it all belongs to you. And one of the things I like the most about this story is this reality that Hezekiah took the letter from The king of Assyria into the temple, and he spread it out before the Lord. I don't know what that might look like in your life or mine. Maybe there needs to be a time when we sit down and we have like some kind of a spreadsheet of every single thing that God has provided us with, every blessing that God has entrusted to us in our lives. If you have a will or you have a a trust or something like that, you might have all that information in one document. You could take that document, and you could literally lay it before God, and you could When I picture, this is my mind, when I picture this happening uh, in the life of uh, Hezekiah, I picture him laying this out before the Lord and maybe even laying his body prostrate on top of that and just surrendering in in an act of absolute, complete surrender and submission. And then he prays, he he acknowledges the complete ownership of God of all things, and he prays for God's protection and deliverance. Now, it might sound silly. I'll be honest. I I can understand that. It might sound to you like something that would be overly dramatic. But I think sometimes we need to do overly dramatic things in our lives to really drive home the point of what we believe or what we know we need to be committed to. And maybe that's what needs to happen in your life and mine. Some kind of a a transfer of ownership, prayer or ceremony or service where we acknowledge that in a very deliberate way. By the way, 2 Kings 19, verses 35 and 36 say that that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. you know what the king of Assyria did next? He got on his horse and he went back home because God is in complete control of all things. Here's the second suggestion I have. We have to really embrace this, an understanding and a belief that every, every spending decision is a spiritual decision. This is another way that we acknowledge the ownership of God of all things. We acknowledge that every spending decision is a spiritual decision. If I understand that everything belongs to God and that whatever I have, loosely speaking, is simply entrusted to me as a steward, then every spending decision I make is a spiritual decision. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you acknowledge in your life, genuinely acknowledge and believe with all your heart that everything belongs to God and what you have has just been entrusted to you for a time and you're a steward, then you have to acknowledge that every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Now, one of the first implications of that is this truth that then every spending decision becomes equal. In other words, there's nothing more spiritual about the decision you make regarding to giving than any other purchase you might make. If every spending decision is a spiritual decision, that means buying a car is a spiritual decision, and taking a vacation is a spiritual decision, and buying groceries, and paying off debt, and paying your taxes, and you can go on and on and on, because we're using the money that belongs to God and has been entrusted to us in a way that we hope honors him and acknowledges him. But let's talk about it just in terms of generosity for a moment. You know, I've had lots of conversations with people over the years about generosity, which I think is, we'll talk about this later in the series, is clearly, clearly a strong one of the strongest messages of the Bible with regard to how God wants us to steward whatever he's entrusted to us. He wants us to be generous. And honestly, I think, I think everybody has this innate desire to be generous. Not everybody is, but everybody would like to be generous. And so we talk about it every year. But I've had a lot of conversations with people who will say something to me like this, Pastor, I don't have anything to give. I can't give. I can't support the ministry of the church or I can't give to this special offering or this special need because I just don't have enough margin in my financial life to give. You know, margin is the difference between how much comes in and how much goes out, you know? And if you're a a wise steward of what God has entrusted to you, then you've got margin between the two. But if you're not a wise steward, uh, not only do you not have any margin, many people are underwater. I mean, they're spending more than than what comes in. That's the reality of life in America today. And so they said, I just can't do that. Um, I, 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 I don't have anything to give. Well, let's think about that in practical terms. Let's just, just imagine, just think of it like this. Like you have a joint account, financial account with God. You go out and spend whatever amount of money makes you happy, whatever money, amount of money uh, makes you feel comfortable. All this money has been entrusted to you by God. That's what you do. And then when God comes along to take his rightful portion, you have no other choice but to say, sorry, I spent your part. Sorry, I can't support the ministry of the local church. I can't do my part to help uh, provide food for the hungry or relief for widows and orphans or make it possible for the scriptures to be translated in the language of unreached people groups or plant churches or whatever it might be because I've spent your part, God. How do you think God responds to something like that? I think we can know because there's an example of how God responds to something like that in the Old Testament book of Malachi, which is the very last book in the Old Testament. This is what Malachi chapter three and verse eight says. Will a man rob God? This is God speaking. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. That word tithe means tenth, so the tithe means to offer God the first 10th of whatever he gives you or whatever he entrusts to you. This is a requirement of the, of the Mosaic law, and it was also an act of gratitude and devotion. This is I don't have enough time to fully explain that, but we'll talk about it a little bit later in the month. But in this passage, when God's people did not give, or at least they did not give their best, God used some very specific and direct language to describe what they were doing, and he said, will a man rob God? When you are a child of God, by virtue of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a servant of God. Every single decision you make as a servant of God is a spiritual decision, including every spending decision. Now, I can tell you by way of personal testimony, and I've shared this with you before, I'll say it again, that my wife, Sandy, and I, and we've been married for almost 42 years. My wife, Sandy, and I, Have a commitment to generosity that affects every other spending decision that we have in our lives. Let me make that more practical. Our commitment to generosity affects the kind of house that we live in, the car or cars that we drive, the vacations we take or don't take, the amount of money that we save for the future, and on and on. Now, there have been times over the years, this is funny, there have been times over the years um, when someone will say something kind of sympathetic to me this probably happened a dozen or so times over the years. Something sympathetic to me about the kind of house that I live in or the car that I drive. Something with the inferences, where the inference is, wish, I wish you had something nicer. I wish you, I wish you had nice something nicer. Um, <laughs> there have been times when, when women have given purses to Sandy because they, it's like, yeah, you need to get rid of that ratty purse. You know, we, we, we wish you had something nicer. And that's such a kind, generous, generous thing. I don't, please don't misunderstand w- what I'm saying. Uh, But here's the deal. We love the house that we lived in, and I'm not a car guy. I'm just not. I know that's a big deal to a lot of people, uh, and that's a big financial drain for a lot of people. I read something the other day about what the average car payment is in the United States in 2023, and it made me gasp. But beyond that, Sandy and I just have this commitment and conviction related to generosity that dictates our lifestyle, and that's a choice that we make. That's a conviction that we have. One time a guy in Oklahoma said something to me like, you know, this, and he was saying, yeah, he was saying about how, how, how uh, sorry he was about, you know, the fact that preachers didn't get paid very much money, and you had to kind of live a lesser life, and said, so my wife and I want to take you and Sandy out to dinner. I know preachers don't make much money. We'd like to do something nice for you. I said, okay. Then he took us to Taco Bell. Taco <laughs> Bell. Taco Bell. This was in the 1990s when you could get three tacos for a dollar. So, by the way, if you're going to do something special, you feel bad for me and my wife, if you want to do something special, just know I'm a little bit more of a Tony's of Indianapolis or a Ruth Chris kind of a guy. And maybe what I should have done is tell that guy, if you really understood that every spending decision was a spiritual decision, you'd take me someplace a lot nicer than this. (laughs) Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. That's a part of acknowledging and embracing the ownership of God of all things. Here's the third thing real quick. I'll do this quickly. And the third thing that I would suggest is that we reject the pattern of the world when it comes to money and things. We reject the pattern of the world when it comes to money and things. And here's what I mean by that. I'll keep it short. The world wants you to believe that the more you have, the better your life will be. The more of worldly things you have, the better your life will be. The world wants you to believe that the more, the bigger, the newer, the better, these are the things that make life meaningful. I hope that your faith is mature enough where you know that's not only not true. That's a lie that is intended to do you harm. I've told you before, the Bible does not teach that wealth is wrong or inherently sinful. Some of the wealthiest people in the history of the world can be found in the scriptures. What the Bible teaches us is that God is concerned with how we steward, how we manage, how faithful we are with whatever amount of money that's been entrusted to us. And so what God is concerned about is faithfulness. John Wesley once said, when the possessor of heaven and earth, God owns everything. When the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, but as a steward. Look at these words on the screen and read them with me from Proverbs 11 and verse 28. Let me hear your voices. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Isn't that a great verse? You trust in riches, the end's going to be bad, but the righteous, the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. And that word righteous has the fundamental meaning of being right in the eyes of God. And don't you want to be right? Who wouldn't want that to be said about them, that they were right in the eyes of God, that they were right in character and they were right in conscience and they were right in conduct. That's the life that we all need to aspire to And God has entrusted to us a certain amount of wealth. And our faithfulness with that wealth begins with understanding that every single thing belongs to God. And when you live with that understanding, then that question of can a single church in central Indiana change the world does not sound so crazy. Let me just try to drive that point home to you one last time with a little video that I want to show. Then I'll come back and pray.
1: In 1993, under the leadership of Pastor Reggie Epps, the Old Biblical Academy was built. MPCC helped start the momentum for Calvary International Biblical Academy, SIBA. SIBA has been a place honoring Christ-centered leadership development and Spirit-filled ministry expansion in some of the most unreached corners of the world. Currently, we average 12,000 students participating from 520 satellite centers, representing 14 states across India and three surrounding countries. You gave with your hearts wide open and allowed us to set up the recording studio for the main center, as well as screens for the satellite centers. In addition, you continue to support 10 leaders who have been trained through this program. Not only have you provided financially, but through your support, 34 pastors received brand new motorcycles that they use to reach hundreds of families on a weekly basis. You helped purchase the land and built the Delhi Center that became a place of refuge for 137 Afghan refugees who were forced to leave their country in 2021. When people were suffering, you covered them with your prayers and compassion. Over the years, you helped drill wells in 12 different drought-affected areas where people are so grateful to finally have access to clean drinking water. During the pandemic, when the nation was crying out in anguish, you gave generously and helped us install the only oxygen-generating plant in this region. MPCC helped with the construction of the new Mission Hospital building where our goal is to provide trustworthy and affordable care to everyone. Our cat lab is one facility of its kind for a population of over 18 million people. We were able to start this facility because you helped meet program needs. Pastor Chris Philbeck dedicated the Dort Church building where Pastor Sakaram Dandi ministers to about 115 families every week. MPCC ladies traveled to India to encourage hundreds of women leaders across the nation. When children were abandoned and needed a secure place to call home, you helped build the boundary wall around our children's home. Over the years, you have helped build churches, train leaders, provide relief, empower women, and send out medical professionals so people can experience the power of Christ's redemptive love. The path of surrender is cheap, but the cost of freedom is high, and we are grateful for partners like you who have chosen to stand with us during these times.
0: So let me ask you a question. Can a single church in central Indiana change the world?
1: Yes. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And I hope, don't misunderstand this statement, I hope that all of you recognize truly, genuinely, what a significant church you are a part of. And I don't say that for the praise of men. I say that for the reality of living out this mission of changing the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for our time in the word today. I pray that uh, we would really embrace these fundamental biblical truths at the foundation of being good stewards of what you've entrusted to us, beginning with this truth of ownership and the call for us to be faithful. Thank you. Thank you, and we pray your blessing on this church and all the partners that we have and all the ways we work together to change the world for Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. And everyone agreed and said?